Hey everyone, welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today we have an amazing show for you. We are going to talk about security for a bit on the Internet of Things. We are going to talk about a brand new HomeKit certified light switch. The Amazon Echo has some new skills. We've got some chip news for people and a connected lock story from Kevin and a Nucleus video intercom system review from me. We also have an ad from Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And our guest this week is Andy Ellis, the chief security officer at Akamai. So kick back, stay tuned, but wait just a moment for a word from our sponsor. The days of walking into a sports stadium, sitting down, and watching a game are over. Technology is the fans' newest companion. San Francisco 49ers Vice President Sean Kundu came to the Arm TechCon this week to describe how his organization is leveraging mobile technologies, smart networks, IoT technologies, and software to revolutionize your in-venue experience, streamline stadium operations, and build businesses around those services. All right, here we are. Let's kick it off with, oh my God, security on Friday. Or lack thereof. (laughs) It's not as bad as everyone thinks. So here's the message from us for you. Last week, what happened was there was a massive distributed denial of service attack using open source software found on the internet. It's called the Mirai software code. People used this to create a botnet comprised of a lot of network DVR cameras, some routers, some printers, and a couple other kind of connected devices. It was a huge attack. It is one of the largest ever seen. And these attacks represent a whole new wave, like a whole new escalation of DDoS attacks. These guys actually attacked Dyn, which is the domain name server service which basically acts as an address book for the internet as a whole. What happened is a few people on the East Coast saw big popular sites go down because people couldn't actually access them using the DNS system, all because it was being hammered by all these quote-unquote IoT devices. Mm -hmm. The world went mad. I was very mad being on the East Coast and affected not once but twice on, I guess it was Friday morning, Started out, I couldn't access Twitter. No big deal. I can live with that. But then my Sony PlayStation View TV streaming service that I use shut down. I had problems with Amazon services. It was a mess. Kevin's life ground to a halt. Meanwhile. And, and I wondered, actually, I wondered. In fact, when Twitter was finally back up, I'm like, I wonder how many people had IoT issues since so many of those go back to the cloud and if they can't find their servers, well, that's a problem. And some people actually did say that they had some issues. Yes, actually, August sent an email to me explaining that their video doorbell was having problems because of the DDoS attack. So yep. here's the the quick take. And I've actually, our guest is going to talk in depth about this. So stay tuned for Andy. And I've written about this. Basically, these devices have an open port to the internet. They are not your traditional IoT devices. They're basically giant computers that have an open port to the internet. Your light bulbs are not really at risk for this type of attack because one, they don't directly connect to the internet. Two, they don't have a lot of capacity and compute power to actually be useful in a DDoS attack. So little perspective there for you guys. As part of this, though, I did decide, hey, we should really have a conversation about IoT security that does more than like, yeah, we encrypt your data. And we, uh, 
like most companies, when you ask them about security, they're like, we encrypt your data and we store your passwords in a secure manner. And you're like, shrug, okay, and move on. (laughs) It's probably time to go deeper. So I sent some emails out to companies like Nest, Philips Hue, Ecobee, Netgear, Chamberlain, which makes the MyQ, Wemo, SmartThings, and Wink to find out how they're handling security. We're not going to go into a lot of depth here, but I am going to post this in the newsletter that I do, Stacy Knows Things, so you can find out more about this at a granular level. But the upshot was these companies are actually doing a good job. Most of them have bug bounty programs. Most of them are doing pen testing, penetration testing, at least once a year, if not more. Almost like a lot of them actually monitor the status of their devices and either, if not mm-hmm. through a direct kind of network operation center, they do it through like heuristics on the data. So if the data, if like a device stops reporting, they're going to notice. If a device starts behaving weirdly or a group of them are, they're going to notice and take action. And I suspect, I mean, we'll find out when your newsletter comes out what the responses are. I suspect, however, that they're a little bit better at when they find a security issue, they're actually pushing software updates to your devices as opposed to most of the devices that were used for this DNS outage were older and uh, networked uh, DBRs and such that don't typically get updates. And a large amount of them actually were built upon uh, chips from a particular company as well. Yes. And a lot of them had hard-coded passwords, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. about. I'll put it in the show notes also, but I did a story for consumers basically telling you how you know if your device is hacked, how you know, you know, what should you do and all of that. And in some cases, guys, the news is pretty bad. It's basically, you know, set your device on fire and send it off into the great beyond. Don't actually do I can that. tell you, I can, I don't know if you talk about this uh, in, in your story, but I can tell you one thing I did immediately. And that is I started monitoring the network traffic of all of my devices when the outage was going on. I'm like, hmm, do I have any bots here that are just churning and pinging the DNS servers or what? But I did not see anything out of the ordinary, which was good. Yes. And there are port scanners that you can Mm -hmm. use. So that'll be in there too. Yes. Monitoring your traffic is actually one of the steps that we talk about. Look at that. Ta-da! Kevin, you're so smart. I'm a mind reader. All right. So that's the security update news, etc., Guys, if you're buying devices from reputable vendors, and by reputable, I mean they have a brand, you can Google them, look for bug bounty programs, look for them to, you know, make you change your password, look for over-the-air updates. If you haven't upgraded your router in a couple years, my God, go do it. One, you'll probably get better Mm -hmm. internet speeds. Two, you get improved security. So that's that. Let's go on to fun product news, because we know this Mm. is not going to make us stop buying connected devices. Nah. Pish-tosh. Pish-tosh, But I I probably will not be buying the next device that we're going to talk about only because it's HomeKit and I'm not really invested in HomeKit. Which I'm not either, but I did buy an iPhone and I'm setting up my own HomeKit setup. So guys, stay tuned because I'm going to be a lot smarter about HomeKit in a couple weeks. Cool. You're going to love it or you're going to hate it. You can tell me. So... (laughs) Tell us about this light switch, Kevin. So, new product. Literally, it just hit our uh, inboxes right before the show. We, we actually didn't know about this when we were planning to talk about today. But Elgato has the new Eve light switch for forty nine ninety five. It is HomeKit compatible, as we mentioned. 
And what's kind of interesting about this one, too, I think a lot of people, because we talk so much about Wi-Fi, this featured Bluetooth low energy for its usage. So that's a fairly, I don't want to say fairly unique. It's, it would be unique in my house because I do not have many Bluetooth devices. So you might be, Stacy. you might have more than I do. I actually don't. And the reason I don't is because, and there's actually SwitchMate makes a really, that's hard to say, makes a really nice Bluetooth <laughs> light switch. And the benefit here is, one, you get a controllable light switch, but two, you could actually put the switch anywhere. So if you've got a switch in a hard to reach place, you can just mm -hmm. be like, hey, I'm going to screw to a Bluetooth light bulb and I'm going to pop this switch on the wall and voila, it works. So that is handy. But because Bluetooth mesh has not been super satisfying, the remote control on these things isn't great. So the light will work. The The switch and the light switch to the light is fine because they're usually within a wonderful distance. They're close by, right. Unless you're going to do something crazy like program the light switch to turn off all the lights in your house, which is conceivable on other switches. I don't know if you could do it with this particular one. But that sort of stuff gets a little iffy with Bluetooth if you don't have a strong enough Bluetooth mesh network. So this is a product that I'm actually going to order and buy so I can test it in my new HomeKit thing because everybody really is excited about connected light switches. Right. Elegato also makes the sensors, the HomeKit sensors. So they've got a water sensor, a temperature sensor, an air quality sensor, and a wind open-close sensor. And these, are, these actually, I've tested those. They work really well. So if you're a HomeKit person, this is definitely a device you should look at. And if you do look at it, let us know because we haven't tested it yet. Yeah, one quick question for you if you're going to get one of these. Do you have an Apple TV 4 or an iPad? I do. I have an iPad. Okay, so you could theoretically set that up as a home hub and then remotely control lights through HomeKit, basically through the home app, even when you're not at home is my point. If the Bluetooth in the iPad and the Bluetooth in the light switch. <laughs> That's the question. Oh, connectivity. You only go so far. <laughs> yeah. But new Bluetooth will go farther and we'll have better mesh networking, and we are waiting for that. So Bluetooth 5.0, it's going to be awesome, maybe. Okay, so next news pit, also in the consumer smart home side, the Amazon Echo has two kind of exciting things. Well, one of them is that, uh, and I'm surprised it's taken this long, is that Amazon has brought the Echo functionality to its low-cost tablets. Uh, it actually reminds me a lot of like Google Now, Google uh, Assistant, because you can tap and hold a long press on the home button on a Fire tablet and then speak to your Echo through the tablet. And you'll actually get little pop-up cards like I do with my Fire TV. So like if I... As for the weather, I can get a weather card on my TV using the Fire TV. So very similar. It's just now it's down on the tablet. Okay. And you could also, you used to be able to tell the Echo to send data to Fire tablets mm -hmm. and it would show up there. Right. Right. Although, now now it's, now it's native. That's the thing. Got it. Okay. And my big frustration though with this, and I'm curious how this, how fast does it load? Because I, I don't actually have anything that it could work with this. I don't know if you've tried it. Have you tried it? I don't have any Fire tablets. I've only tried it with my Fire TVs, um, in which case it is quite quick, but I, I couldn't speak to the tablet implementation. Okay, because the we're going to have to say the name. The <laughs> that, that was me bleeping it out for you. The app on my phone is really slow to load. I mean, I'm like sitting hmm. there, and I don't know if it's my hardware. It's, it's also slow on my husband's iPhone, so I don't know what's going on there. I would like it to be faster. 
But I like this idea. I love because sometimes, you know, listening to like, if you ask the weather for 10 days out, that's going to be painful to listen to. Um, yes. Sending data on to a visual device is really like a no brainer. So yay. The Amazon Dash program also got a slight boost in some more, I'm going to call them meaningless statistics for Amazon. <laughs> there are 60 new buttons. So now they've got over 200 Dash buttons. These are the buttons you press to automatically reorder stuff. And people are happy with them. Amazon says, what do they say? Five times more? Five times more uh, purchases uh, than last year or in the past year. And I so think 5x growth. Mm-hmm. 5x growth. And I believe... Last year, they said like a purchase was being made every 13 seconds or something crazy like that. So apparently people are using them. How many? We have no idea, but 5x more than were, which makes sense. There was a massive expansion of the program not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And there's 60 more brands added to the Dash buttons now. So I think there are over 200 brands. You know, I look at the Dash buttons every now and then and I'm like, is there a place in my life for one of these? And so far, I haven't gotten there. The only mm-hmm. thing I reorder on a regular basis are these like toothbrushes for my dog. They're like little toothbrushy bones that smell like pumpkin pie. Ooh. Yes, they smell. I, I like pumpkin pie. Sorry. Go ahead. They do. They're, they're like the PSL of dog <laughs> biscuits. You know, maybe if they, they put that on a dash, I would be like, yes. But right now I just turn to and I say, please order more dog biscuits. And you really should have a. And maybe they do. I know they've have they've have programmable dash buttons that you can get and do your own tinkering. But why not have a generic one that lets you select or assign whatever product you want to it? I imagine there's probably control over the brand name, and maybe Amazon has to keep the product in a certain stock, maybe in its warehouses. Mm-hmm. Could be. Could be. Makes sense. I don't know. I'm just- you could always order through your Echo as well. So. Yes, which is what I do. And finally, folks who have the Logitech Harmony, you guys are going to be excited because now it speaks with the Echo. Yay! Mm. So everyone, you don't need if this, then that, because that's how people used to do it. Well, I used to use You Know Me, which was the software. Mm-hmm. You spoke to You Know Me, who spoke to the Harmony Hub that then spoke to the Echo. <laughs> and then Lots of speaking. Lots of things. And then everything went back, you know, and controlled it. Oh, it was no, it was You Know Me. No, it was the echo to you know me to harmony. That was the that was the order of operations there. And it worked. So you'd say something like Netflix and chill and lo and behold, it would happen. But now that is unnecessary. Although the nice thing about the you know me software is it's it comes pre-programmed. It looks at the devices mm-hmm. you have and suggests like really good recipes for you. So if you don't want to program your own Logitech Harmony remote, you know, that's an option. We have chip news. This week, I am at ARM TechCon in Santa Clara. I have a hard time with these Bay Area city <laughs> names. I'm like, I'm in San someplace. Um, sometimes I even get it right. This time I'm in Santa Clara. And it's actually a good show. I saw, you know, the plans that SoftBank has for ARM, which are basically, it's a bet on there being a trillion connected devices by 2023. Think of the DOS we could do with that. Well, but these are low power. They're ARM. I know. Well, the Cortex, the Cortex A series could really do a number, but the MCUs, not so much. So ARM has done a couple things. So 
Big number of devices, Masa, who is the chairman of SoftBank, Masa-san predicted the singularity. It was a really fun talk and kind of talked about how, and this is with our, this is what Kevin and I talk about a lot when we get excited, how all of these cheap sensors are just getting better and better and cheaper and cheaper. And we're going to use them for sillier and sillier things that are just going to change our lives in really unexpected ways. My favorite example from the show was from ARM CTO, Mike Muller, who said that someone was working on a a smell sensor for people's underarms that would would talk to their deodorant and tell it when to work harder. This is not a real product. This is an idea of a product. But the chips are getting better and cheaper. And one day we might have something like this. Ah! I don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) What if that gets hacked? (laughs) But it was just an example. Kevin is stinky right now. <laughs> it does. It we does bring we up. You don't need a sensor to tell me that. It does bring up interesting ethical things, like, oh, look at that person's data, the physical data for that person. They must be mm. very nervous and smelly. So, Arm also announced a really unique service. It kind of baffles me. They announced mm. Embed Cloud, which is they're partnering with an unnamed OEM cloud provider. ARM has built software to basically handle the first layer of an IoT cloud, which is device management, getting the information from devices, and setting devices up online. And I'm just kind of like, wow, a chip company getting into the cloud business. Really a a chip design company. Yes. That's the thing, because ARM doesn't create chips, as we all know. So actually to create this embed cloud... I was scratching my head. I'm like, wait, they're actually making a, a physical product, if you can call the cloud a physical product. It's we can't. Shocking. They're not hosting their own data center. They mm-hmm. did write their own software, though, for this. So it's based on some of their their Sansa and, oh, the Six Lopan acquisition. Sensity. Sensity. Yeah. Sensity. I can remember Six Lopan, but I can't remember Sensity. That's crazy. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> so they're doing this. I'm excited about this because it's a really interesting new business angle for ARM. It's a whole, it's a SaaS software as a service kind of model. So that's interesting. It's also an opportunity for them to go up the stack from mm-hmm. not necessarily providing the hardware, but, you know, getting pretty close to the hardware and now going up. They say that customers want the ease of use. They also say that the links to their cloud, the embed cloud and their trust zone and crypto cell security stuff is going to be really important and customers want that. They want it from one vendor. We'll see. Hmm. I'm not convinced that this is like a home run or anything, but I do think it's a really, it's a logical step when you look at the business transformation and we'll see if it's the right step. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because they've obviously known for their computing. This is pushing compute a little bit to the cloud, which is very unique for them. Other companies obviously have done this, but I agree with you. It's a very logical thing for them to do. I just, I didn't think about it prior to. So, um, Intel, since we're talking about ARM, let's talk about Mm. Intel. Intel launched a new Atom for connected cars and gateways. So Intel calls this fog computing, as does Cisco. This is basically the idea that you'll have some compute in the cloud, you'll have some compute in the edge, and in the middle, you're going to have a gateway where a lot of like your sensor data comes in and is analyzed right there and then and sends data back because it's just too far, too expensive to keep going all the way from the device to the cloud. Too slow, too much latency, especially for something like a car where you need instant or near instant uh, compute. 
and if it's intermittent connectivity. Mm. So Intel's chip is ruggedized and it's low power for an Intel chip and still very capable. And it also has some of the deterministic features that that help enhance the safety for robotics and autonomous driving kind of applications. So in that way, it looks a lot like the recently launched ARM. It was it the R52 architecture? The R52, yep. So the R52 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. So this feels like, I mean, this isn't hugely, you know, surprising, but it feels like we're starting to see a coalescing around what we need in these kind of gateway devices and for autonomous cars and robots. So it's it's like, oh, everybody agrees that we need these things. Yay. We're already to Kevin's story. Kevin, it's story time. Oh, it, it's not a very exciting story. Let's not build it up too much here. But it actually illustrates the difference, I think, between having connected devices and actually having a quote unquote smart home. Because so many people put these products into a house and then don't take full advantage of the smarts behind them. Whereas I actually had to because quick story, uh, my son comes in after work sometimes 12, 1, 2 in the morning and he's not locking the door. Or, and then yesterday he went to work. Everybody was gone. He went to work at 11 in the morning and we came home at 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And again, he did not lock the door. So we've got a wide open house all hours of the day and night. And I'm like, you know what? I have this connected lock that Stacy sent me and I hemmed and hawed over installing but finally did. And I don't really use it in an intelligent way when this is a perfect opportunity. So sure enough, I went to uh, my Wink app and I'm like, oh, I can just make a robot that says anytime that the lock is in an unlock status for five minutes, I just arbitrarily chose five minutes, lock it. And it works like a charm. And no matter who forgets to lock the door when they leave the house, the house will always be locked within five minutes of that. So just a you know, handy little tip to think about your devices and use them in a smart way, use them to their potential. So this is great. A lot of people in this is a perfect example of this is how the smart home will eventually work. But it's hard for people because people do not automatically think about all the things things can do. I will warn you, though, Kevin, do not like uh-huh. go out to garden and forget your key or your smartphone. Because when I have auto, I, I had a lock that I had auto lock on. It was a little bit faster, but it still surprised me where I'd be like watering the plants and then I'd go into lo- to go into the house and I'm like, ah, the door. <laughs> well, that is a good tip, but I'm actually covered because this lock is a push button. Oh, it's got the keypad. Yes. Correct. Which we don't carry keys to the house. We have the push button. I love it. I think keypads are actually way better than connected locks, to be honest. Mm. They're more well, useful. Well, this, this is both. Ta-da. And that's a quick set Z-Wave lock, right? Correct. That is correct. So he's using a quick set Z-Wave lock powered through the Wink Hub. Dun, dun, dun. You could also do something like this using smart things. Mm -hmm. All right. My show and tell for this week is the Nucleus. This is a video intercom system. When I showed it to my husband, he was like, I don't get the point. I don't get it. (laughs) And then we used it for a while. I was like, oh, it's basically like a dedicated Skype client, which is what literally everybody says. And they're not wrong. It is like a dedicated Skype client, except it also doubles as an echo of sorts. It does not play your Spotify playlist, and it does not play Pandora. But other than that, it can control your hue lights and do a lot of the things that the echo can do. So if you don't have one and you do have a nucleus, you've got two in one. So this is a device that works better in pairs. One is about $250. The other 
If you buy two, they're $200 a piece. And people buy a median of three, according to Jonathan Hmm. Frankel, the CEO. And that is because they're using them to replace these old school intercom systems. And it's actually really useful for this. So we put one in our upstairs, one in our kitchen. We actually turned off the echo feature. And it's not called that. It's called the... Hmm. (laughs) This terrible bleeping. (laughs) It's consistent. The Aurora feature, you can actually turn that off since we have an echo downstairs in the kitchen. We did on the downstairs one. But you can now, we can now just, when my daughter is upstairs pacing in my office or I'm up in my office working and my husband needs to ask me where something is in the refrigerator, he's just like, and you know, it, you can set it up so it connects automatically for people within your now, you're in your home. And mm-hmm. it's like, hello. Oh, yes, this is where this is. And it's really nice. It does sound very much like Skype, only it's limited to your own wireless network, your own house. It's not like you could put one at the neighbor's house and have a video chat with them. You are wrong. That's what. So so you can. That's the other interesting bit. So now it's now it is interesting to me. The other place we have ours, because we were sent three, is my husband's office. So now whenever I want to talk to him, I just basically press the button on. There's a button. Mm -hmm. The home screen looks like a button of all the people you can call, basically, in your network. And you go, and I call my husband's office, and he's like, why are you calling me again? But it's (laughs) super fun. And you can have voice only if you want, or voice Mm -hmm. and video. And so grandparents, you could give this to somebody who isn't tech savvy. It's very easy to set up on your network. You basically set it up on your Wi-Fi network, and then you enter a code that says you're part of this family, family unit, this nucleus. And it's... It's kind of cool. So the downsides are, here are the downsides or things I would like to see. One, there's no missed call function. And maybe that's because I'm not thinking of it as an intercom truly, but I I would kind of like to see a missed call function. But Mm. I'm old school or new school. I don't even know what that is. And we had some issues with one of the devices. And I don't know if this is representative of anything, but it, it just bricked itself. And then we had to restart it and waiting... And it took a bit to restart, mm-hmm. and then it came back online. So, yeah, I, relatively minor issues or cons. I, it's actually very more. It's much more interesting to me now because it works outside of your, your land. One other thing I, I just thought of, and I'm guessing you can do this. This would be an interesting feature to me, especially if you said you have it like at, at a parents or grandparents' house. Since you can set it up for auto connect or auto um, auto answer. Yeah, auto answer. I was going to say auto accept, but yes, auto answer. Could you theoretically use it as a uh, remote monitoring tool? I, let's see. When it (laughs) auto answers, it doesn't have video. So no. Uh, So no. Okay. When it auto answers, I believe it is just voice. And I I now kind of want to run and check. Oh, there's one other thing, though, that's really cool about this is Hmm. that there's an app on your phone and that becomes part of your network too. So when you're like, I'm on the road right now, but I could call my daughter when she's mm-hmm. in in my office, basically. But so if I rang right. my office and she heard it, she could go answer it. We just established a connection without her needing a smartphone, without you know any effort on her part except answering a call. Yeah, no, that's a nice feature. So I'm liking it. It's kind of fun. Hmm. Is it worth two hundred dollars in our house? Maybe not, but I can see setting up. It, it would be worth. 400, it would be 400 because you'd buy two. It'd be worth $400 for like a connection with a grandparent, I think, easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Oh, the video quality is not great. I will also say that. 
So if your family's tech savvy, maybe this isn't like the best for you. Like mm. my mom, for example, I'm always like, I have to call her. And then I'm like, mom, will you get on Skype? Or I, I text her and I'm like, hey, mom, let's do a duo call. <laughs> <laughs> there is no spontaneity in our video calling, none. And sometimes it's like, oh, I would, but my phone isn't plugged in or Skype's not on this computer right now because I'm doing something else. You know, it's, it's drama. So this would be kind of fun for that. Cool. Yay. Okay. So that is the show for this week. Stay tuned for an interview on home security and IoT security featuring Andy Ellis, the CSO of Akamai. You're going to learn a lot of really good stuff in this. Before we do that, let's have a message from our sponsor. We are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And I have Dr. Tom Bradich, who is a VP and general manager for servers and IoT systems at HPE, here with me today to talk about how HP handles analytics at the edge. Tom, HPE has introduced a new product called the Edgeline Boxes, and they have 64-bit computing at the edge. Are these gateways? No, they're not gateways, and that is the uh, the difference here. In fact, it's 64-bit, but also 64 individual Xeon cores, which, as you know, is Intel's high-end architecture that we've employed. But it's a, it's a brand-new category. Uh, there is the IoT gateway category. In fact, we have products, and so do my competitors, in that category. But those are low-performing. They have an iCore 5 or an Atom processor, sometimes ARM you know, processors, and they, and they do a good job. I don't mean to be negative. But when you need to do deep analytics fast, right at the edge, then you need the horsepower of proven enterprise class compute, such as the 64 Intel Xeon cores that we have. And therefore, we had to create a new product category, not just new products in an existing category, but a new product category. And that new category is called converged IoT systems. And in that category, we converge several things in a single environmentally hardened box. And that chassis or box is temperature, shock and vibration hardened, and it houses, as I said, up to 64 Xeon cores. It houses up to 30 terabytes of storage, and it has something very unique. In the same box, it also houses data acquisition and control systems from our partner, National Instruments, in the same box. And then we also converge HPE's famous ILO, Integrated Lights Out, remote management technology. Because, again, what's more remote than the other off-prem called the IoT Edge? So this new product category provides amazing benefits in its convergence, but also amazing benefits in its ability to do deep analytics that's normally reserved for the data center and do them fast because they're out at the edge where the turnaround time and the response can be much quicker and many times immediate. Do I still need a gateway box in this scenario? The edge line IoT converged systems can do the job of a gateway. But we have customer applications now where we have a gateway connected to the IoT converged system. So you guys are essentially putting a mini data center at the edge. Why do we need something like that? Well, that's a good way to put it because it has tremendous high-performance computing capability and a very large memory footprint and storage. And why would you need that? Let me give a quick example. In the world of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and cognitive computing, there's a notion of building the model with respect to machine learning application. And model build takes a lot of CPU power to build. And then it's usually built back at the cloud at the data center, and it's shipped and does a runtime out at the edge. But with such deep computing, one can actually build the model at the edge, augment the model at the edge, and run the model at the edge. So 
therefore, the bandwidth, the security issues, the latency, and the cost issues are eliminated when it can be all done at the edge. Okay, Tom, where can we find out more about Hewlett Packard Enterprise? You can find more by going to our website, hpe.com slash IOT. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest, we have Andy Ellis, who is the Chief Security Officer at Akamai. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic today, Stacey. How are you? I am super great. I can't believe you're doing so fantastically because, you know, on Friday, the internet was under attack. I feel like you guys probably were noticing that, had some opinions on that. Yes? Sure. So we saw you know, the attack against Dyn. So it's worth noting that you know, Dyn, like Akamai and many other companies, you know, are parts of the infrastructure that sort of make up the internet and the web as we know it. But we're not necessarily the internet. So the internet itself you know, wasn't under attack. The routing fabric was holding up fine. There were just a bunch of really popular websites that weren't available for folks mostly on the East Coast on Friday. So in the wake of this, security researchers discovered that once again, this massive, it was a DDoS attack, distributed denial of service attack against Dyn. This actually was done by the same, I don't know if it's the same organization, but using the same source code that was used a couple weeks ago against you guys to attack, I think it was Brian Krebs' website, yes? Yep, so it's the, there's the Mirai code, which is used to build this botnet, mostly of you know, network video recorders, some other things in IoT, you know, all these things are sort of hard-coded default passwords. And we see some of the same devices showing up in both attacks. So now that could be the same actors. It could be different actors now that the source code is out there. You know, one of the things we have certainly seen in the past from other denial-of-service attacks you know, when people were taking over WordPress sites is once it became well-known that there's this great source of botnet material, lots of people went and fought over that botnet and would take different parts of it for themselves to go to attacks. And that's a pretty normal thing we see in the DDoS for hire world. Okay, so these people are basically, they have a massive network of devices that they can use to hammer someone's servers. And what you're saying is other people then take over parts of... Steal it. They steal it. Okay. So it's bots battling bots? Effectively. And we're seeing a lot of sort of scanning traffic in the background noise of the internet of people looking for machines to compromise. Okay. So let's get to these machines. I feel like everybody is attacking the quote unquote internet of things, but what it really feels like is a lot of these devices appear to be routers, network DVR cameras, some printers, and they feel like things that maybe like, is it fair to call this the internet of things or should we maybe come up with better, better terminology here? So one of my colleagues calls it things on the internet, which is probably a little more apropos. I like it. How do we want to make a distinguishing line between these two types of devices? So I'm not sure yet, but I know where I draw the line between the things on the internet and the stuff that came before, to use technical terms, is if we think about everything that came before, it was always associated with an entity. Right? We think about PCs or laptops or tablets as being tied to a human. We think about servers as being tied to some business venture or you know, group or coalition. And all of a sudden, we have these things that people buy, they put on the internet, and they abandon them there. And they're really not part of a network fabric. They're not a mesh. It's not like your fitness trackers where you have 85 things monitoring your health that are talking to each other. We have these devices that just get plugged in and put on the internet. 
that aren't really associated with the person that bought them. Maybe it's the network video recorder at your local convenience store, uh, or maybe it is your home router that you buy and you drop in, but it's doing traffic all the time that has nothing to do with a human. There's no human sort of behind it. And for me, that's where we those become a thing on the Internet. And I guess if I had to make a hypothesis for where Internet of Things takes over is it's really where those become part of something greater than themselves, that they're an object that it truly is networked, not just in the TCP IP sense, but within the data and application layer as well. Oh, I like it. See, I was making a division based on things that were modern, designed to be updated over the air, as opposed to like older stuff that they're like, oh, let's connect this and is kind of directly connected to the internet, maybe doesn't go through a cloud. But I like yours better. So I think the reason that's an important distinction is because it's not just about modern versus legacy. We are still seeing devices put on the internet that look more like things that don't have this, you know, over-the-air updates, because over-the-air updates is, air updates is really hard. What makes these old devices that are just sitting out there unattached to anyone so problematic? I think what makes them problematic is a few things. So first of all is the fact that they're omnipresent on the Internet. A network video recorder, when you think about its functionality, you know, the very first version of them had no network capability, right? You plug it in, you plug the monitor and the keyboard and a mouse into it, and so you could look through all of your cameras. And then someone said, well, this is silly. Let's put this in the back room, and we've got all these monitors everywhere, so let's just put a web server on it. And the, but it wasn't designed to be over the Internet web server. It was sort of on your intranet. And I say designed to be, and I'm using very liberal uh, uses of the word design. I apologize to any software architects. It was really sort of cobbled together in many cases. And then we plug them in, and you put them on the Internet because you have IP space, and now it's there. And so it's this capacity that just shows up that is a fully functioning Linux server. Right? You can log in, you can do whatever you want. It's general purpose computing, no longer sort of very specific hardware designed to only do one thing. And that's where it starts to become a problem. Got it. Because then you have this massive capability that's no one, no one is really paying attention to that can be harnessed for all kinds of shenanigans. Yeah, and as long as the cameras are still operating, like who in the convenience store is going to notice? Well, that brings me to my next question, which is, if I'm a consumer, how would I ever know if my devices were compromised? So it'd be really hard. It's in that category of difficulty that most small businesses and even medium businesses don't even look at whether or not their bandwidth is being used, which is what you'd sort of have to do. You'd have to do the monitoring. If I hold out a hope, and here's why, I, why I'm fantastic, because I have a fant wonderful idea. Anybody who wants to execute on it can totally take this, which is parental controls. The monitoring software and hardware that people deploy for parental controls, whether it's you know, Disney's Circle or Web Nanny or any of these, provides us the opportunity to think of these devices as children. You know, the problem with children is they grow up into adults and the way they use the internet changes. But if I put a network video recorder in my home, it seems like the sort of thing that a small device that's used to profiling traffic and preventing unauthorized uses would be wonderful at ensuring that I'm not participating in one of these botnets. Okay, so I, everyone should have some sort of software. Would it be on their router that would... Possibly on your routers, possibly as a home device. I'm, I've got to order a circle from Disney so I can figure out how these work because I've got some IoT in my house I'd love to filter out. There you go. Okay. So you wouldn't know except if more of your bandwidth is being used. What can you do if 
you do have one of these devices? Do you, you know, set it afire? <laughs> so, sadly, that might be the best approach for a couple of these. Because some of these devices, they actually have hard-coded into their software the passwords. So it's not even that I can tell you to go in and change the default password. So it's not a default password. It's a hard-coded password. Right. And that means that it's written in the code. The consumer can't change it. It's just a remnant of some, can I say, lazy programmer? What, what, why did they do that? So I don't, I don't like attributing malice or incompetence to people, but user authentication is really hard to do right. And so once you start down the path of saying, well, how would I do user authentication in this world? So imagine you're building these devices. So you're going to go into business. Maybe you're a Kickstarter and you're going to ship devices out to all these people. And as soon as you say that you don't want to have a default password, well, now you've got to think, what's the initial password on these devices? When a user opens up the box, what is their experience? Now you could build something that says, okay, well, they have to do auto discovery and connect in and the user can log in and change the password. And that's like, okay, you're relying on the user to log in and change the password. What if they don't? Like it's doable. I'm not saying it's impossible, but now you have to write password management software and write a user experience that will be friendly and accommodating to your users because that's really what the internet of things is about. It's about surrounding yourself with the internet in ways that make your life better, not worse. Okay, so then this gets us into, gosh, what should I look for in the devices that I buy? Obviously, there's no sticker on the box that says, ah, hard-coded passwords, <laughs> beware. So what are the types of questions I should be asking, even honestly, even as a reporter when I'm talking to these companies? How do I grill them appropriately on security? So I think question number zero is, is this a server? Right? You have a very different set of problems if you have a device that is only a client, that it makes connections out, it does polling to gather data, than you have if you have a machine that is running a TCP server that people could would connect to, or even, heck, a UDP server. Those are where you're going to start to run into problems, is where you are a service that people can interact with because that interaction can go south. If the only way you can interact is you connect out, I'm not saying you're perfect. You still have a lot of challenges you'll have. How do you authenticate who you talk to, that they're a legitimate person? But that would be the first question is to figure out, is this a server? And if it's a server, did it really need to be? Okay. So a popular connected device that people think of as a server is a Nest thermostat. Does that meet your criteria? So I don't know how Nest did the implementation, um, but certainly the hub that Google has, uh, OK Home, I believe it is, that's a server, right? It's other devices are talking to it. But I don't believe the original Nest needed to be a server, right? It sits here, it monitors your temperature, it makes a call out, and it does stuff. OK, but Nest... Did, you, did, it, did it run a web server that you talked to? Actually, I guess you had to be able to control it from your phone, didn't you? You have to control it from your phone. now. But, but did they... you talk directly to it, or did you talk no, you to Nest? No, you talked to the cloud. Right, so you talked to the cloud. So it was a client, your phone was a client, they're both talking to a server somewhere else. So it's a very different problem, right? That's, but that's not this case where an adversary can log in directly to your Nest and start sending out packets. Necessarily, necessarily. They might have had a server there, but they don't necessarily need a server there. Okay. And I think architecturally, one of the things I've been hearing is that having a device that has a cloud interface, so Nest, you talk to the cloud, it talks to the cloud, Wemo, there's cloud, nothing is directly connecting out to the internet. And that feels like probably a good way to go for like devices. 
that's a great way to go to, for this problem. Now, on the flip side, that means that if the vendor goes out of business, your device stops working. Oh, Andy, you're killing me. All right, so then what do I do? Accept bricks in exchange for security? Yeah, so, well, to have that, you'd want to have something that had a server running on it so you could directly talk to it from within your home. Oh, wait, but we just said that's a bad idea. Yeah, we did. But you're trading off security goal against security goal. So one is, do you want to have availability in the event of a failure or business model change on the part of your vendor? And the other is, do you want to be a public health nuisance? Oh, gosh, it's so exciting. I can't. So there, there is no middle ground here. Could we put a hub in and have that be the brains of the operation and act as the server and the hub could talk to the cloud, but then there's local stuff that never goes out? So isn't that what... You know, Apple with HomeKit and Google with OnHub and perhaps ultimately Amazon with Alexa are aiming at is to be that central point of contact within the home that would broker these interactions for you. I believe it might be. Okay. So that's how I should be thinking of my my new secure architecture that is also convenient. Yes. Got it. So like what happens now? The, I believe one of the vendors actually just did a recall of all of their devices. It was a Chinese IP camera maker. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher its name. Hangzhou Jamai, maybe technology? I Sounds feel, pretty close. I got Jamai. I feel like that's close enough. Anyway, so these guys did a voluntary recall. Should we be looking for more of that? Should the government get involved and demand that bad actors get have a recall? Well, it's going to be interesting to look and see what is the effect of the voluntary recall. Because remember, these are devices that mostly, you know, got purchased, deployed, and abandoned. Now, it may be that people will say, oh, my goodness, mine is one of those. I want to participate in the recall. And it'll be interesting to look at the details of the recall. Are they giving you your whole, all your money back, enough to acquire a new one? What are they actually going to do? That's, you know, question number one that's always interesting. Um, and will they be in business or will they show up as a different company next week selling a slightly different product? So I'm always skeptical on the recalls. The challenge around regulation is going to be this. This is a global problem. And so in this case, it's a Chinese manufacturer. I don't want to blame all Chinese manufacturing. Let's just run with this one for a moment. Let's imagine the U.S. had a law against something that we believed actually worked. Well, what would that law really do? Would it have stopped this botnet from being accessible to be groomed? Absolutely not. Most of the bots aren't even in the U.S. So you'd make these devices not available in the U.S., But what you'd also do is you would inhibit the production of a lot of devices by U.S. companies. Think about how many objects on Kickstarter would be affected by regulation here, and would that have a net good or a net negative for us? And I think it would probably be more on the side of a net negative. That's true. And this particular company actually does software and modules even for other connected devices. And we haven't even gotten into the fact that a lot of connected devices have a supply chain that is just really opaque. Very opaque. And let's be honest, like if you were going to go buy a network video recorder tomorrow, or even today, you probably only care about three things. You care about the resolution of the attached cameras. You care about the, how much disk you have and whether you can expand that externally. And you care about the price. That is true. If you've ever used one, they're, they're all horribly unusable. Like the interfaces are not the most graceful and beautiful things because that's not what people are paying for. Right? They just want, give me a video feed, make it as good as I can get at this dollar price. That is true. All right. So we have to change some things. The industry has to change some things and people shouldn't be so price sensitive. I don't know. 
this is one of those tricky problems where there's, we have externalities in the system. Oh, my goodness. Anytime you see sort of a systemic flaw, you should look for the externality. The acquirers, the companies that make these, and the networks that they're hosted on are not the ones that feel the pain, but they're the ones who are making all the financial decisions. The people who feel the pain are the targets, their hosting networks, and their vendors. And so we have this you know, beautiful dichotomy where you know, all of the initial costs are borne by one group, but the secondary costs are completely borne by the second group. And we know from you know, talk, looking at lots of economists, if we believe they know what they're talking about, is that that leads to externalities where the first group will act to minimize their costs but maximize the costs on others. Right. So given this, Andy, do you have a solution for us? Do you have any sort of recommendations on how we can kind of make IoT more secure? Because right now people are looking at this and going, holy cow, I want none of this crap in my house. Or holy cow, this stuff is terribly dangerous. Let's regulate the heck out of it. So I think the first reaction might be slightly better than the second reaction, which is that if it's users saying, I don't want to be part of that, that's them re-internalizing the externality, and that's a market force. So maybe we will see people shift and say, oh, I want to go to this hub mode, and maybe this hub mode will also protect me against devices it doesn't control. Like, I think there's a market there for parental control devices for your robots. So that's, my, that's what I'm holding out for. Um, the other thing I'm holding out for is this is not something that is new, even though it feels it. You know, we see harbingers like this every few years on the Internet. You know, when we discovered all the unpatched WordPress and Joomla sites, everyone was like, oh, my goodness, how can anybody survive that? And the answer is not only did we survive those attacks, but by today's standards, those attacks are minuscule. Because the internet has grown so much. It's not that defense has grown. It's that the internet has grown so much that this is such a small percentage of the traffic now that those went away. And now this new thing has shown up. It's a big percentage of traffic. It's noticeable. But my expectation and belief is that the internet will continue to grow. Businesses will do more things. We'll deliver you know, larger and larger video to more and more people. That's capacity that is important to be there for us to be able to handle denial of service attacks as well. But doesn't that capacity increase also increase the pain or power of a denial of service attacks? Because as as you're pumping out more internet content at higher resolutions, I, as a consumer, am tempted to upgrade my broadband, which gives them more bandwidth to in turn point. It's absolutely a vicious cycle. Is that I believe that you know the attacks from the network video recorders will within a few years will say, Oh, why were we worried about terabit per second attacks? Now we're worried about twenty terabit per second attacks. But that'll be a world in which we talk about, you know, petabit scale networks that are delivering huge volumes of traffic. Awesome. Well I hope you guys can keep growing the networks. That's our hope. To keep up with these attacks. All right, Andy, thank you so much for coming on this week's show. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week on the Internet of Things podcast. And if you don't get enough IoT news from this show, feel free to sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyoniot.com. 